It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Well, let's go ahead and look at some of the questions that have been sent to us, or to me, um, via email. The first question um, deals with the masculine and feminine approaches to meditation. The question is, I'm wondering if there is such a thing as masculine and feminine approaches to meditation. My impressions are that many of the techniques that you have helped me with are masculine approaches. They provide me with structure and direction. Are there other ways to look at this? Meditation is meant to be balanced. So we don't want it to be too masculine or too feminine. Because when you go in either direction, um, you're going to lose a little bit of the experience. And... The way I teach meditation, the way I was taught meditation, encompasses both the masculine and the feminine. The techniques, yes, they are masculine. Why? Because they are active. They are doing something. They are redirecting your consciousness. Um, They're involved. They're dynamic. And we need to be able to do that because if you don't have the structure, you don't have the techniques, um, you're just going to kind of float around in consciousness and who knows what's going to happen. Maybe one day you'll have a, uh enlightenment experience, but in from my perspective, it's better to just work towards it rather than sitting around hoping it's going to work out. Um, but within the process, um, remember, you're encouraged to sit quietly in between the techniques. You're encouraged to do alternate nostril breathing, do Kriya Pranayama. But then after you're done, after you've done a certain number of repetitions, you want to sit quietly and observe and be present and watch and wait. That is the feminine aspect of the practice. That is the receptive aspect of the practice. Um, Just like when when you're getting ready to have a meal, The masculine aspect is preparing the meal, chopping things up, cooking them, frying them, whatever you do, boil them. And that's the masculine active part of it. But what do you do after you're done cooking? Well, then you sit down and you eat the meal. You take in the nourishment. It's a receptive process. That's the feminine part of it. And you'll hear me say this again and again as the years go on because I think it's a great um, little story. Yogananda would often say that if you don't sit in the silence, if you don't abide in the silence after a meditation technique, if you don't sit in the tranquil after effects, that's how Lahiri Mahasaya would describe the effects, the tranquil after effects of Kriya Pranayama. He would say that that is like preparing a a delicious culinary um, gourmet meal, and instead of sitting down and eating it, what you're doing is you're just preparing it and then throwing it in the trash. So the balanced approach is you do the techniques to enliven the consciousness, to direct the chitta, to direct the consciousness. But then once consciousness is directed in a certain way, 
Then you let it go for a while, and you sit and experience that after effects poise of the technique. And then once the peak experience passes from that technique and that uh, moment of receptivity, well then if you still got more time to meditate, well you take up another technique and you get back in the groove, you get back in the zone, you get back in the uh, momentum of the process towards samadhi, towards one-pointedness, towards um, directing the chitta in a particular direction. And then when you're ready, you take your hands off the handlebars. Like if you're riding a bike, you take your hands off the handlebars and, and you just observe. Again, you move back into that receptive space. But we don't want to confuse uh, receptive space with passive daydreaming. Receptivity is alert abidance. Um, Ramana Maharshi, I've read many instances where when people would come and, and sit with him in the ashram, if they were sitting too long, he would have someone go over and shake them. And he would say to them, don't do that. You're getting yourself into a trance. You have to, you have to be present. So if what you're doing is, 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 if you're losing your presence, if you're losing your consciousness to sleep or to daydreams or to trance, um, you want to avoid that. But anyway, back to the question. The general idea is, yes, you, you do the techniques and then you abide in the after effects silence. Techniques are the masculine active part. Um, alert abidance, relaxed alert abidance is the passive feminine part. And you need both of them. We need spirit, we need nature, we need activity, we need uh, receptivity. And even David Frawley, who is a well-known uh, Ayurvedic uh, doctor and um, folklorist, uh, when he would talk about Kriya Yoga practice, he would say it, it is one of the most balanced approaches to uh, spiritual practice, whether you're a Vata type or a Pitta type or a Kapha type, whether you're an air, or fire, or water type, um, that the way the practices are put together uh, that it gives balance to any type, really. So, consider that. Next question. So I had a question regarding meditation. Almost every time I meditate, I get an extreme surge of energy in my crown to the point that it is unbearable because I do not know what to do with it. Uh, shall I uh, emit it? towards the outside or just keep it within myself. I get an intuitive feeling that I have to release it to the outside, but I'm just struggling in how to do it. Is there any technique regarding it? Everyone at some point or other is going to have a different kind of experience, uh, bodily sensations from meditation practice. And the more you meditate, if there are certain areas of the body or certain chakra, energy centers, psychophysiological centers that need to be cleaned up a little bit or purified a little bit, just I always look at it like there, there's a pipeline going through your, your system, an energetic life force pipeline. And when the pipes are running smoothly, you don't really notice it very much. You'll feel the movement. You can feel the sensation sometimes if you've got good body awareness. But you don't tend to necessarily get too caught up on it. But when you have something going on where there's a, maybe some congestion, metaphorically, uh, then you might notice maybe uh, more tension within the chest when you meditate and you do Kriya Pranayama. Or you may notice uh, more pressure in the spiritual eye center. 
And when these things happen, you want to do your best to relax. I don't mean go floppy relax. I mean just take some deep breaths, you're sitting up straight, and whatever area you're feeling, try to imagine that area becoming more spacious, more open, less tense. So don't don't focus on it so much that you're wondering, what is this all about? Because the more you focus and wonder and get anxious, the more tight it becomes. And with issues of the crown, the way you're describing, uh, you can bring your attention to the crown. And what I like to do is I always like to imagine that I'm able to breathe through the area where there is maybe that kind of congestion or that kind of experience or that kind of feeling or sensation. Meaning when you breathe in, you can feel what the breath feels like as it goes into your nostrils. You can feel the sensation of it moving into your nostrils. When you breathe out, you can feel the sensation of what the air feels like uh, coming out of your nostrils. So you want to relate that experience, feel it, um, as though you have the, the, the sense of air moving in and out of the crown. So when you inhale, you feel as though air or wind or life force is flowing easy, just like it flows easy into your nose. Uh, into the crown. And when you exhale, you want to imagine that you can feel it flowing gently out through the crown. And if you do that, that can be very helpful. <clears throat> One other thing you can do is if you get fixated on a particular area, you want to redirect your attention back to the fullness of your body. And I, I learned this through my studies in energetic healing um, many years ago one of my uh, probably one of my best teachers uh, he had said that what many people do is when they have a problem or a pain they tend to just focus on fixate on that issue that's all they're aware of that they have all this other body but all they're focused on is that area and by doing that that's that's kind of making one's uh, perception sort of myopic tunnel vision onto that experience. So of course, that's all you feel is that kind of pain or sensation. And so he would say, always encourage people to tune into the rest of their body. Well, how do your hands feel? How do your toes feel? How does your belly feel? Really go through and explore the totality of your body. That way, what happens is it, it, it releases the congestion because you're not just so focused on a particular area, wherever it is in your body. Uh, so similar, you can do this with meditation. If you get fixated or caught up in a particular chakra or a particular area, it's okay. Do your best with the techniques that you have, and then direct your awareness to all of you, all of your body. Feel every, really scan through from the tips of your fingers to even what, what do what do my fingernails feel like to the backs of your hands to your elbows to the skin on your forearms to your chest to the seat that you're on you go through the whole thing and what that's going to do is it's going to help circulate uh, that life force that body awareness and it'll help balance things out and you can do that at any time really it's a wonderful practice Another question. This looks like a long email, so let's see if I can tease it out. OK, 
Okay, how can we separate ourselves from images we get during vivid dreaming at night and meditate in the morning? Or is it possible to effectively manage those feelings and make them dissolve? Or should we treat them as just thoughts, mental chatter, impressions of our thought process and experience and focus on breathing? That's a big question because there's many reasons that that could be going on. It might be that you are just too active in your imagination. And if that's the case, then the best thing to do is just focus on the breathing, return your attention to the technique, treat it as though those are the distractions, and remember your meditation process, the techniques, the mantras, all those are to get you focused on something other than your thoughts, other than your distractions. And of course, those images or those thoughts or those distractions are going to be persistent. Like when you're in a, a crowded room and everyone wants to talk to you. Well, the more you ignore them, they might try a little harder for a bit because they really want to talk to you. But after a while, they realize, oh, this person's not responding, so let's go somewhere else. You, your thoughts will do that too. Your emotions will do that too. But it does take patience depending on how active your uh, consciousness is. The, the reason I say it's complicated is because maybe there, if, if we're talking about feelings or if we're talking about obsessive thoughts, well, we have to remember that what happens in meditation is that um, you begin to un uh, release and process stuff that maybe you've not looked at in a long time. And so it's like, you know, when, when someone gets in a safe place, all of a sudden, they feel comfortable kind of letting go of, of what they've been holding on to. And, and that's why when it comes to traumatic experiences, sometimes it's not the traumatic, ex the time of the traumatic experience that when that happens, that's the difficult part. The hard part is after it's passed. Because what many people do is when they're in a traumatic situation or state, they, they're just dealing. They're, they're doing their best. And they don't have time to think about how to process that. But once the, the, tra the trauma or the, the pain-causing situation goes away, and now they're just left in a peacefulness, state of peacefulness, or, or they're able to look around and take a breath, then they start to realize, what have I just been through? And then they start processing it. So meditation, if you've got a lot of stuff like that, does that too. Um, that's why some people have a lot of problems with it. That's why you get all those... Um, people talking about how meditation is dangerous. Well, it's not dangerous. It's dangerous if, if you don't know how to work with it. And it's dangerous if you've not processed um, some of your important things. And that's why, you know, many of the interesting Christian people way back when I first got started, they would say, oh, don't meditate. When you meditate, you're opening yourself up to the devil. You're opening yourself up to demons. Well, of course, it's going to seem that way. The moment that you get calm and start to look within, well, there's a whole bunch of crap in there that's tormenting you, and now you can look at it. Yeah, it's going to seem like you're being overwhelmed by those things. And from that perspective, when you come from a, a culture, and oftentimes the Christianity can be kind of a, a repressive culture, um, they don't want you looking at those things because then you have to like face and make changes and, and maybe realize, hmm, maybe this person was abusing me and I don't need to be around them, even though they are. Anyway, we can go on and on, but point being that uh, we, we do always have to be aware of the possibility that um, if we have persistent obsessive thoughts or persistent obsessive feelings, uh, it might not be because you're broken or you have OCD. It might be because there's a loop 
of trauma in there that you don't know how to deal with. And sometimes meditation will resolve it for you. Sometimes you'll have an aha moment and it'll, it'll, it'll pass. But in my experience, usually you have to have the help of a, uh, a professional who, who knows how to, how to teach you how to be more resilient and you have to learn how to be more resilient. So many reasons that, that, that could be an issue. Um, if it's none of those big issues that we, big reasons that we talked about, then yeah, just ignore it. That's what Mr. Davis would say. And Mr. Davis wasn't a big, uh, he, he didn't really recommend therapy too much and those kinds of things, mainly because, you know, most people kind of get addicted to it. Um, he would say, well, you're gonna, you're gonna have to transcend it all anyway, so why not just release it? And I, I wish it was that easy. And maybe for him it was. Um, but I think we could have a little more realistic view of that. Uh, next question. Okay. Uh, I'm a bit stuck thinking about the idea of contentment. How do we balance this idea of being content in the moment versus the desire to change something? I.e. content in the moment but want to change jobs to better support other areas of life. That's a big one. And this is something that probably will come up for almost all of you. And again, as you study the Bhagavad Gita, as we have done and are doing, over and over, there is this emphasis toward, and even the Yoga Sutras, there is this emphasis towards surrender. There is this emphasis towards um, being content. And it can be very difficult to sort that out because we live in a, a, a doing society, a society that, that, that values doing things. Well, you can still do things and be content, and uh, you can still be active and be content. And that becomes easier the clearer you get and the more in tune you become with the wholeness of life, life's processes in general. Because what most of us do in the beginning is we think we have to do this. We have to figure that out. We have to make something work. We have to try and do and on and on and on. It drives us crazy. When most of the things in life, it is good to do your best to, to, to set up the opportunities the best of your ability. But uh, oftentimes things just tend to happen and then you have to respond. Well, the clearer you get and the more you are aware of what your purpose and path is in this world, um, the more this makes sense. Because, for example, you know, I do a lot of podcasting, I do a lot of writing, I do a lot of teaching, I do a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, and I don't sit around and think, I need to do it to make something better. That's really the difference between contentment and non-contentment. If you're doing something because you think something is wrong, well then, you're going to come at it from a, a different kind of perspective. But if you're, if you're, if you're in a groove and you're moving forward in life and you just happen to know, you know, I think it's time to change jobs. I'm, I'm a more skillful person now. I have more experience. This really isn't, it's not really satisfying anymore. I, I'm not able to serve well here. Well then, you, that doesn't mean that you're discontent. That just means that you're tapping into the intuition and 
the fact that the rest of life is saying, hey, why don't you check something else out? It's time to do something different. It's time to uh, close a chapter and start a new chapter. And you can do that without becoming discontent. And change doesn't mean that you are not content. So essentially what you learn to do is just see change as everything else. For a while, you're at a plateau and you're, you're working, you're doing this, you're engaged in a certain project. But like all things, that will eventually come to an end. So when it comes to an end, then you recognize it, you accept it. And in a state of contentment, you look around and wonder, well, what, what now? What, what do you want? What should I do? What, what does the bigger picture want of me? And if you have an idea, an inspiration, a lead to follow, well, then you follow it and see where it goes. If you don't, then again, you can try to make an opportunity, which no big deal. That's fine too. Uh, or you can simply sit back and wonder what, what next? Which way should I go? And, and it's okay to admit, I'm not going to be here forever. So let's see what's possible. What other doors are there? And then pick your door and walk through it. And you can do that without becoming discontent. Um, and that's going to happen in, in all different areas of your life. It's going to happen with work. It's going to happen with relationships. It's going to happen uh, with your own personal growth. Um, you're going to change the way you exercise. You're going to change the types of food that you're interested in for a while. You just have to learn to roll with it. That's it. And roll the dice. See what happens. And be all right with the, the outcome and the result. And realize that there's more going on here than just uh, uh, what you tend to think is going on. So um, when it comes to this idea of being contentment during change, that's how you do it. On the other side of it, some people are addicted to change because they're dissatisfied, because they're running away from those little demons in their head, and it's just another way for them to um, distract themselves. So you want to try to get a sense of, am I doing this because, because really it is time for a change? Like you can feel it in your gut. It's like you can sense the weather is changing. Or is it because you're bored and you're, the moment you get bored, you start to get restless and you can't stick with what you're supposed to be doing? So you have to develop the discernment to kind of figure that out. And I wish I had an easy way to do that for you, but it's really just paying attention to life and meditating more and learning to trust the process a little bit and seeing where things go. It's a good question. One more from our write-in questions. All right. I'm finding it difficult to read The Eternal Way. And that's the recommended book that we're studying, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Mr. Davis's copy. My mind wants to shut down with all these new words and storyline. What is a good way to read and comprehend? Just take your time. Maybe figure out why is your mind rebel against the words in the storyline? Do you not like learning? Um, or do you feel complacent, kind of stuck in, in what, what you're comfortable with? That's possible. Uh, or is it too much? Are you overwhelmed? And again, if you're overwhelmed, just slow down. Just take your time. You know, as we go through the apprenticeship program, we're going to go through the entire Bhagavad Gita. But as I talk about in the apprenticeship program, the two-year program is really just a foundation. It's to kind of give you an idea of what you need to know and be mm, prepared to continue to uh, 
review for the rest of your life as a, as a Kriya Yogi. So if it's just overwhelming for you, if it's just too much, well, you've got a long time. So just take your time with it. Go a little bit at a time. Digest little pieces at a time. And if you can do that, that can help. Um, if you just can't get into it, well, start kind of contemplate what's really keeping me from being able to read this or, or wanting to read this or um, figure out if there's some kind of block or resistance there. And that's possible. And again, reread the first chapter over and over again. Chapter one, the despondency of Arjuna, because that's all about the blocks and the resistance. And uh, that might be able to help you. When meditating, it's difficult to drop the mantra and sit in awareness. I can for a short period, but my mind wants to go back to the mantra of breath awareness. Where Will our ability to sit in awareness naturally increase as we practice our Kriya? Yes, exactly. That is the purpose of uh, Kriya. That is the purpose of the meditation techniques. It's to direct your consciousness, to direct your, your mind and your consciousness so there's a momentum of being able to focus on one thing, which in the beginning becomes a mantra or breath awareness. And if the mind is very active and very engaged, well, then you really have to focus. You really have to try to tune everything out and look at uh, the mantra and the breath awareness. So it's okay to just focus on the mantra, but every now and then you're going to have to say, all right, I always like the example of riding a bike um, and when you're riding a bike, sometimes you can take your hands off the handlebars. In the beginning, it's very hard. You try to do it, you know, oh, you're going to fall over, so you got to hurry up and grab on again. Well, it's like that with this experience. Um, you can, you're doing the mantra, you're riding the bike, you're holding onto the handlebars, and then you want to exist in awareness. So you just start to release your grip a little bit, hold it, ah, ah, you're losing it, and then you hurry up and grab on. And then every time you bike or every time you meditate, you experiment. You try to just hold it a little bit, hold it a little bit longer until eventually you figure out how to let go. Uh, I recommend going and watching that video that I did on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash online called um, the one, I think it's the one skill every meditator should know. You can search for that on my YouTube channel, the one skill every meditator should know. And that helps to speak to this idea of how to do it. But yes, the idea is that Kriya will naturally increase it. However, you still have to keep trying. You still have to keep trying. Question, another question. Aren't all the chakras important? It seems like some of the meditation techniques just focus on the upper chakras. Of course, all of the chakras are important, but with our spiritual practice, our goal is to direct our attention into the states of consciousness of the higher chakras. The lower chakras, the first chakra, the second chakra, the third chakra, uh, these are related to pretty much how everyone in the world lives. First chakra, survival. Second chakra, procreation, creativity. Um, third chakra, willpower, sense of individuality. In our world, just about everyone functions from those three chakras. But very rarely do we start getting into the fourth chakra of compassion, the fifth chakra of being able to perceive and understand truths, the sixth chakra of transcending the mind, the seventh chakra of um, really seeing the wholeness of life as your very self. So why don't we focus on the lower chakras in Kriya Yoga? Because we have to remember 
that when it comes to yoga practice, meditation practice, and Kriya yoga practice, there is there is an, an implied or expectation, something that's not stated, that you begin this practice once you've already balanced out those lower three chakras. That's why in the Yoga Sutras it says, and now instruction in yoga practice from an established tradition. And now you have built your business, you have taken care of your family, you are now ready to let go of those things to direct your awareness within. Or you have learned how to be creative, you have learned how to meet your response you've learned how to meet your responsibilities, first chakra. You've learned how to be creative and joyful, second chakra. You've learned how to be a strong individual in the world and use your willpower, third chakra. Well, once you got that, you're good in this world. You're good in this uh, experience, this existence. So now what? Well, now we move into the spiritual process, which is what Kriya Yoga is all about, which deals with, again, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh chakra awareness. We're learning to, um, in a sense, amplify our, our spiritual body so that we can explore what's it like to see the world from a place of compassion from the heart. That's not normal. You can think it is. But in, you go to all kinds of churches, and yes, they're nice, loving people, usually to the people that go to their churches. Not very often are they, not very often do people stray from their tribe, and they tend to protect their own more than anything else. Again, that's all first, second, third chakra stuff. But now we're, through yoga practice, we're trying to get into the heart chakra of seeing everyone as your brother and your sister. Everyone is just important as everyone else. You're starting to get into the, the, the fifth chakra, the ability to experience silence and recognize truth. You're starting to get into the, the sixth chakra. So fifth chakra, abiding in silence, recognizing truth. Sixth chakra, going beyond the mind. And this is why we direct our awareness up through these chakras. And this is why Mr. Davis would always recommend that in your daily life, even if you're not meditating, try to hold your attention, the heart, the throat, and the sixth chakra. Try to hold your attention up there. That will help to lift you above and beyond, help you develop above and beyond the first, second, and third chakra. So we don't spend too much time on the lower chakras because it is hoped that you've already attended to those things before you got here. Like when you go to grad school, we have a general idea that you've had certain classes and we don't want to have to go back and reteach all those things. So that's the reason. Now, final question from the um, notes that were sent to me. Will you be providing initiation during our apprenticeship? Before the apprenticeship program, I was going to Center for Spiritual Awareness for initiation. Will you be having any retreats um, this year? Uh, yes, so hopefully you knew about this already because the, the email is, is dated a while ago. But yeah, we're doing a retreat in September. Um, just southeast of Pittsburgh, and this is the way the apprenticeship program runs. Ideally, we have an end-of-year retreat where we all come together and we learn, uh, we review what we've covered, and during those situations we have um, uh, initiations. <clears throat> and that brings up the idea of the apprenticeship program itself. You know, really, what is one of the main purposes of the apprenticeship program? Well, the apprenticeship program... Um, is not just for everyone. That's why we only let a certain number of people in and I, I have an application process. Um, it's for people who, who feel a specific uh, resonance with this, this branch of the lineage of Kriya Yoga. That way, after two years of reviewing your, your journals and having email interactions and meeting you at the retreats, 
I know, um, I have a better idea at least of what you're about and I have a better sense of your dedication to the path. So the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program mainly is to train you to have the skills, the knowledge, the information, and the support in these two years so that you can continue to live from that for the rest of your life as a Kriya Yogi. That's the main reason. The secondary reason is um, many people are looking to participate more more in the lineage, whether they want to call it a student-teacher relationship or a guru-disciple relationship. Well, that's what I had with um, Mr. Davis, and Mr. Davis had with Paramahansa Yogananda, and Yogananda had with Sri Yukteswar. Um, th the apprenticeship program is my way of figuring out, is that going to work? Number one, does the, does the student want to do that? And if so, I'm able to observe and see, is that going to work? If not, we find a way um, or see how it goes. So that's really one of the main reasons that, um, secondary reasons that we have the apprenticeship program. Okay, I just bought several Roy Eugene Davis's books from CSA, and I received them yesterday. Live, Living Consciously in God, 366 Themes for Daily Contemplation and Spiritual Enrichment. In the Sanctuary of Silence, How to Plan a Daily Schedule of Superconscious Meditation and Effective Practice. We'll be using these, though you might want to recommend these books to the class, so I mention them here to you. Um, yeah, any of Roy Davis's books, of course, they're, they're good to read. Mainly the ones that are in print. All right, keep that in mind. Uh, Roy wrote a lot of books in his life, and we have to remember he started very young, uh, he met Yogananda when he was 18, and he was very young when he wrote his first book. And I think he had, he's written over 50 books. That's a lot of books, and there's only a few of them that are still in print. And that's because when, when he was asked that question, why don't you put this book out? Why don't you put that book out? Well, if you read some of his older books, you're going to possibly scratch your head and say, well, that's pretty, hmm, that's, a, that's something. And it made sense for the time in which he wrote it. But Mr. Davis would always say that the reason he doesn't keep all those books in print is because they don't reflect his current state of consciousness. So the books that are in print are the ones that now currently, up until, um, so the books that have been in print between 2018 and 2022, because who knows, I'm sure people are going to think that he, he wants them republished now, um, that he doesn't. Uh, those are the books to pay attention to from Mr. Davis because those are the ones that reflect, as he said, his current state of consciousness. And I understand why he says that because I've, I've, I've read some of his older books and I compare them to the books that I really enjoy now that are in print and, and, and the ones that are in print are very direct. There's not a lot of fluff. He outgrew a lot of ideas. And in my experience, he got right to the point in, in his final books. And I can remember um, my late wife, Melissa, whom you may know was also uh, a dedicated Kriya Yogi. She would always say uh, that we got the best version of Roy. Uh, we met him when he, he was 69. So we knew him for maybe about 20 years or so until the end of his life. And, and Melissa would always say, 
I don't, I don't know why she said it really, because she never really read any of his older books. She didn't know anything about him before that. And we all grow. We all change, even if you're on a spiritual path. Yogananda did that exact same thing. He was a very different person at the end of his life than he was when he wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, but she would always say, we got the best version of Roy. Because by the time we got there, when he was 69, he had had, what, 40 years of experience, and he kind of knew what, what was what. So when it comes to studying Mr. Davis's material, I, I simply recommend focusing on the books that have been in print um, at the end of his life. And it might be fun to go back and read some of his older books. There's some neat stuff in there just to kind of see his evolution. Uh, but it's the, the current books that are most important. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.